The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World Episode 27 The Normans Whenever we are looking for stories of the early Middle Ages, we have to scrap around for contemporary written sources. So much so that the sources themselves have achieved a fame of their own. For example, if we want to know about the earliest years of the Frankish kingdom, then we rely heavily on the information provided by the 6th century Gallo-Roman bishop Gregory of Tours. If we want to find out about the proto-Viking age of Scandinavia, then we may refer to the old English epic poem Beowulf. Therefore, it can become quite exciting when historians believe that they have joined the dots and found that both sources may have referenced the same thing, which can validate the veracity of one or the other. Often, with the more poetic works, we have to be careful to decipher truth from fantasy. Those who attempt to translate such works may disagree about the specific content contained within, with another person who has also translated it. Beowulf introduces us to a man called Higelac, who is described to us as the king of the Geats. The Geats are a peoples who originated from the lands of the modern country of Sweden in Scandinavia. Higelac is described as raiding the lands of Frisia, which would have brought him into close proximity to the Frankish kingdom. It was while raiding Frisia, the coastal borderlands of the modern countries of Netherlands and Germany, that Higelac was killed by a grandson of the great Frankish king, Clovis. Coincidentally, Gregory, the Bishop of Tours, wrote that a grandson of Clovis, called Tudebert, defeated a Danish king called Clochilach. There is enough evidence within these scripts for historians to conclude that the same event is being referenced in both texts, even though there is a difference in the names which can be put down to perception and the fact that historical figures such as kings can go under multiple names depending on their status. If we are right to conclude this, then this represents the first known Viking raid on Frankish territory, significant because four centuries later, these raids would escalate into something that would have continental ramifications for Western Europe. 
Viking raids on Frankish lands from the 6th century are likely not to be isolated to this one incident and are arguably Viking raids purely because of how early they happened. What is referenced to as the Viking Age is normally not taken seriously until the 8th century, but I would certainly be happy to refer to them as Viking raids because these Danes were ancestral to the traditional Vikings and were raiding with a similar manner to traditional Viking raiding. We could say that these represent the beginnings of international Viking raiding. However, it is sensible to state that there is very little evidence of Viking raiding in the following two centuries. This could be because there is very little actually written down about it due to a general lack of written records from this period. It is also speculated that the wealth of Europe was being distributed well, with the wealth of the fallen Western Roman Empire such as gold and silver, finding its way into the Germanic kingdoms of Europe and subsequently Scandinavia. This may have enhanced the lifestyle of the Scandinavians until overpopulation forced them to look beyond their lands yet again. Moving forward to the Viking Age and we start to see that heightened Scandinavian activity inevitably led to more raids on Frankish territory. I have read in some texts that Vikings targeted Francia, particularly after the death of Charlemagne. And although this may have made the prospect more attractive, it certainly wasn't the fundamental reason. Vikings were just as likely to attempt raids on Frankish territory as they were on British territory. And the frequency of known raids on each territory seems to support this. When Charlemagne was on the crest of a wave of greatness as the mighty ruler of a dominant Frankish empire at the turn of the 9th century, Vikings were raiding his lands. As well as raiding the monastery of Lindisfarne, in 783 they attempted to raid the monastery at Noirmoutier in 799. After Charlemagne's death in 814, Viking raids escalated on Frankish lands exactly as they also did on British lands and on Irish lands. Charlemagne's campaigns against the Saxons are well documented and it appears that the Saxons appealed to the Danes for support against the Franks. So although there is an argument to say that Charlemagne's death enticed the Vikings into raiding Frankish lands, it really was only a factor that influenced Viking activity that was already taking place and inevitable anyway. With their naval capability meaning that they could effectively and efficiently navigate rivers, the River Seine was an attractive target for the Vikings, especially as they could access the island settlement of Paris that had been improved since Roman occupation of Gaul in the preceding centuries. Paris now made an attractive target to the Vikings and the Franks probably didn't imagine that river navigators could pose such a threat. Also because it was an island settlement the Vikings felt that they had the naval expertise to besiege Paris quite easily. The Vikings would have felt positive about their raids due to the Frankish Empire being a comparatively disorganised mess since the reign of Charlemagne. 
they may have well been aware that the Franks may have struggled to organise their defences effectively. For the Franks, it was a lot easier to offer the Vikings money to leave rather than exhaust military resources to try to lift a strong siege. The West Francian king Charles the Bald paid Danish Vikings 7,000 French livres to leave Paris in 845. It would be up to the West Francian monarchs to have a political relationship with the Vikings in order to keep the raids of their lands to a minimum. So although the next major raid of Paris didn't take place for another 40 years, Viking raids of West Francia and Paris were still taking place. The city of Rouen required only a short journey up the River Seine, and so it was easier for Vikings to raid than Paris, even if it may not have been as fruitful. So it wasn't always necessary to sail all the way to Paris for a bit of tribute. By the 880s, West Francia was under the rule of two teenage brothers, the older of which, Louis III, was actually quite successful in battle with the Vikings. But by the end of 884, both brothers had died and left West Francia to come under the rule of the East Francian king, Charles the Fat. West Francia was not a great priority for Charles and the Vikings may well have understood that when they chose to raid Paris again in the year 885. This time they came in huge numbers and it was only due to the bravery of the Parisians led by the count of the city, Odo, that the Parisians were able to resist the Vikings until the king could come to the rescue. Odo and the Parisians may well have expected King Charles the Fat to wield all of his military might to send a clear message to the Vikings that they would soon not forget. What actually happened proved to be a huge disappointment for the Parisians. Charles the Fat paid off the Vikings with tribute and directed them to the realm of Burgundy, who were revolting against Frankish rule. The Parisians hoped for better and knew that it would only be a matter of time before the Vikings would come back for more tribute and eventually they would opt to remove Charles the Fat from his title as King of West Francia and grant it to Count Odo instead, signalling the end of the continuous Carolingian rule of these lands. The Vikings did indeed continue raids on West Francia, but King Odo would continue to oppose them. Rollo. The route to Paris along the Seine River requires ships to travel through the city of Rouen. Following raids in the middle of the 9th century on Rouen, the Vikings would eventually take control of the city during the 870s and it is stated that the leader of these Vikings was a man called Rollo. It is a matter of debate after referring to all of the historical references, whether Rollo was actually a Dane, with some claiming that he could have been Norwegian. He may have also had a political friendship with the Danish Viking called Guthrum, who was responsible for the Viking forces who battled King Alfred the Great of Wessex at the Battle of Eddington in Great Britain. Rollo is listed as one of the Viking leaders, who were among the massive contingent that besieged Paris in 885. 
We don't have much detail regarding Rollo's lifetime, but it does appear that he was very active in raiding lands in and around the River Seine. And this was a problem that West Francia dare not ignore for any great length of time, especially with Paris in such close range. On the death of King Odo in 898, the throne would pass back to the Carolingian line under Charles the Simple, a grandson of Charles the Bald. With Rollo ravaging the lands in the north of West Francia, Charles the Simple would decide to act, and when Rollo attacked the town of Chartres in 911, a West Francian force defeated him. Charles the Simple knew that the Viking threat was never going to go away. Even if he slaughtered them, another concession of Vikings would return, and probably in greater numbers. At least Charles had a familiarity with Rollo, so he knew his current enemy. Rollo himself would have been becoming quite old at this point in time and maybe recognised the fact that the West Francian kingdom was becoming stronger now under competent rulers and it may only be a matter of time before Charles tried to eliminate him from the map of France completely. So both Rollo and Charles the Simple agreed to meet and negotiate a treaty. Charles declared that Rollo be named as the Count of Rouen, which on the face of it seems quite bizarre. Rollo had been militarily defeated by the French, but now he was being granted lands. However, this was quite a shrewd move by Charles, and not something that hadn't been done before by a French monarch in order to protect his lands from larger raids. It was a case of better the devil you know. By befriending Rollo and giving him what he wanted, his northern coastal lands were then protected from raids by Vikings that Charles was less familiar with. King Alfred the Great had reached a political agreement with the Danish Viking Guthrum back in the 9th century, which although was not quite the same, it was not altogether dissimilar in its aims. Charles forced Rollo to convert to Christianity, which Rollo seemed to do with a degree of enthusiasm. Charles may have offered his daughter Gisela's hand in marriage to Rollo, but there is some debate on this subject. One account tells us that Charles demanded that Rollo kiss his foot, and that when Rollo refused to demean himself by obeying Charles's demand, Rollo asked a companion to do so on his behalf on which the companion lifted the king's foot in the air, sending him falling flat on his back. This story was written by the pen of Dudo of Saint-Quentin, who wrote of these events decades later and from a pro-Rollo perspective. In the years that followed, the lands under the control of Charles the Simple descended into civil chaos as the Robertians, who were the main dynastic rival of the Carolingians, rose up against Charles. The Robertians had been encouraged by the French aristocracy and despite support from Christianised Vikings in Rouen, Charles the Simple and the Carolingians were defeated at the Battle of Soissons in 923 and Charles was deposed and imprisoned. Rollo seized the opportunity to expand his realm in the midst of this civil war. And so we recognise a very definite existence of a new Viking Christian controlled area within West Francia named 
after the Norse Vikings who controlled it as Normandy. Normandy. The population of Normandy would not have been dramatically affected by the change of rulership. The Vikings loyal to Rollo would have settled but predominantly the population remained as it always had been, a Christian Frankish population that had descended from the Gallo-Romans. It is suggested that Rollo's conversion to Christianity, although enthusiastic, was not a particularly big deal for him. Just because he chose to worship Jesus Christ didn't mean that he stopped worshipping the pagan gods. The Christian world sees Rollo's conversion as a great Christian triumph, but for Rollo it was nothing more than a formal process which would enable him to benefit from the alliances and financial gains that could be generated by the church. Rollo would be succeeded as the Count of Rouen by his son William, known to history as William Longsword. William's mother was a Frankish woman called Puppa of Bayeux, and William would display a much more kingly style of rule over his subjects than his father, Rollo, before him. Rollo ruled with a much more relaxed Scandinavian style of rule, so William's much more Frankish style caused rebellions within Normandy. William effectively put down the rebellions and continued his father's expansionist policies by targeting Flanders to his east, as his father has done before him. To the west of Normandy was the traditional lands of Brittany, which had always maintained a degree of independence from Frankish rule as it was an area of the modern country of France that had been settled by insular Celtic Britons who may have been displaced by Anglo-Saxons and who we refer to as Bretons as a consequence. The Bretons had successfully expanded eastwards into the Cotentin Peninsula after doing battle with the Franks during the 9th century. In 933, the French king Rudolf awarded the peninsula to the Normans and there probably wasn't a lot that the Bretons could do to prevent it. All of these land gains presented a great option for settlement for those Norsemen who had been expelled from elsewhere, with Danes being expelled from Great Britain following the rise of the English and Norwegians being expelled from Irish settlements such as Dublin. The aforementioned attempts to expand into Flanders were not particularly successful though, and disastrously William was assassinated in 942 when invited to meet with Arnulf, Count of Flanders. William's death meant that the succession of the lands of Normandy were concerning. William's son Richard was only 10 years old and was declared as the new Count of Rouen, but was obviously still a minor. With two dynasties highly influential in France, it was not a straightforward affair. The current French king was Louis IV, son of Charles the Simple, but the reversions were still represented by the powerful Count of Paris, Hugh the Great, and they had to reach an agreement that allowed them both some form of influence over the affairs of Normandy. When Richard, 
known to history as Richard the Fearless, reached his majority, he recognised that Hugh the Great was gaining power and influence and pledged his allegiance to him in order to preserve his status as the Count of Rouen and the ruler of Normandy. Hugh the Great's son, Hugh Capet, would be elected to be the new King of France some years later in the year 987 and Richard the Fearless supported him demonstrating the strong bond between Normandy and the Robertian Capetian royal dynasty of France. Richard the Fearless did much to change the nature of Normandy as it was able to establish its own unique identity with the security of a strong relationship with the French crown. Normandy stopped being an extension of Scandinavia and simply became another nation of Europe that maintained a good and fruitful relationship with Scandinavians, especially those in and around the British Isles. Viking warriors started becoming Norman armies, benefiting from the advanced skills of the Frankish heavy cavalry that was symbolic of the strength of medieval heavy cavalry which had improved at battling against the speed the light cavalry of stepland cultures that had often bested the heavy cavalry of European armies of centuries gone by. The characterisation of Normandy continued into the 11th century, a century where our memories of what it actually is to be a Norman is often based. Richard the Fearless was succeeded as the Count of Rouen by his son Richard the Good, upon his death in 996. Despite the fact that Richard the Fearless had often supported the Scandinavian Vikings in their battles in England and Ireland, it appears that his son was highly concerned about the power of the English king, Ethelred the Unready. So therefore, a political marriage was arranged between Ethelred and Richard the Good's sister, Emma of Normandy. Richard the Good appears to be the first Count of Rouen to stylize himself as the Duke of Normandy. The Duchy of Normandy The recognition of the Duchy of Normandy with a duke at its head marked a time where the Normans could be seen much more as an extension of Frankish culture as opposed to an extension of Scandinavian culture. With each passing generation, the Scandinavian aspects, such as language, became watered down. Now the Normans were French-speaking continental Europeans. The 11th century was an incredibly important time in Norman history, especially in regards to the politics of England just across the water. Despite overrunning the Danish territories referred to as the Danelaw that were established in the late 9th century, Danes were still raiding English territory into the reign of the English king Ethelred the Unready. The key to the Norman involvement in this period of English history relates to the fact that Ethelred had married Emma of Normandy and their son Edward would become the English king and he would be half Norman and would also feel strongly linked to Norman culture because he spent a number of his younger years in Normandy. This is because, as the son of an Anglo-Saxon, 
when the Danes invaded England in order to take the crown, young Edward's life would be in danger. The Danes successfully took the English crown on two occasions. First through the King of Denmark, Sven Forkbeard, and then just a few years later under Sven's son, Knut. On the first occasion, young Edward fled into exile in Normandy, the home of his mother, with his parents. Ethelred was able to return after the death of Sven to retake his crown, but after Ethelred's death, Sven's son Knut would successfully take the crown and would look to legitimise and consolidate his reign of England as a foreign invader by getting married to Ethelred's widow, Emma of Normandy. Due to the fact that Knut and Emma had children together, this meant that Knut would favour his own sons over those that Emma had bore to Ethelred, and so Edward stayed in Normandy. Moving forward to the 1040s, and Edward's time would come for him to be called to reign as the King of England, known to history as Edward the Confessor. Edward reigned competently for over 20 years, but the support of the English nobles was key for the success for every English monarch during this period. Canute is known to history as Canute the Great, but even as a Danish king of England, he knew the value of pleasing the English by respecting English customs. When Edward succeeded Canute's son, Hardicanute, as the King of England, the Danes would not be pleased that the son of an Anglo-Saxon man and a Norman woman was on the throne, as they now found themselves left out in the cold. For the English nobles, they would have still been wary of Edward's loyalties and whether they lay with the English or the Normans, the place of his childhood and coming of age. When Edward died in 1066, he had no sons, and the English nobles greatly feared the intentions of both the Danes and the Normans in relation to the succession of the English crown, because the English really didn't trust either the Danes or the Normans. The Norman claim was rooted in the relationship between Edward the Confessor and Normandy, because of course Edward was the son of a royal Norman woman, Emma. The Duke of Normandy by this time was the grandson of Robert the Good, called William. William would have grown up in the company of the exiled Edward the Confessor before he had become the King of England, and so he would have been familiar with him. And so they would have maintained a strong relationship in more of a political sense after William had become the Duke of Normandy. Initially, William was a minor when he inherited the dukedom, but he would have been reaching his majority around the same time as when Edward became the king. William would have been very aware that Edward had no children and that succession was preferred to be somewhat hereditary to avoid disputes and warfare that had constantly undermined nations from the early medieval period. William would have been aware that an opportunity may present itself to him if... Edward died childless. So when Edward did die childless, William set about making a plan to claim the crown of England for Normandy, 
but due to the English nobles' distrust of the Normans and their intentions towards the country, they supported the claim of one of their own, a man with no bloodline linked to the English royal family, namely Harold Godwinson. Harold was the descendant of Anglo-Saxons who had established England as a nation in the first place. Harold Godwinson had to defend England against the invasions of the Danes and the Normans within a year of his accession. He would successfully defeat the Danes at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, but would be defeated by William and the Normans at the Battle of Hastings. Harold was killed on the battlefield and William would claim the English throne, becoming the first fully Norman monarch of England. He would be immortalised in history with the name William the Conqueror. Sicily When we talk about the Normans, our minds instantly think of the Norman conquest of England and the achievements of William the Conqueror, but this is not the first time that we have stumbled across the Normans in our journey through human history. If we go back to our episodes about the Byzantine Empire, we learned of how the Byzantines in southern Italy were challenged by Norman seafarers in the Mediterranean Sea. The question of why the Normans were in the Mediterranean Sea in the lands of southern Italy lie in the early 11th century when the Duke of Normandy, Richard the Good, grandfather of William the Conqueror, exiled a member of the Drongo family for a violent crime. So the Drungo brothers left Normandy to seek fortune elsewhere. It is possible that they became involved in the affairs of the Lombards of Benevento and their struggles with the Byzantines and offered themselves as mercenaries, particularly at the Battle of Cannae in 1018. The Drungos would become a part of the rich fabric of 11th century Italy. Renulf Drango would be granted the county of Aversa and would become its first count. This was the first Norman land of southern Italy. Some years after, and the Lombards would now actually align themselves with the Byzantines and target the Muslims of Sicily, and the Drungos would become involved again, but this time they called for support from Norman families back in Normandy and it would be the Oatville family who would be among those who responded. William of Oatville came and single-handedly killed the Emir of Sicily, earning himself the name William Iron Arm. In the aftermath, relations were strained between the Byzantines and their allies, and the Byzantines showed little respect to their allies, and so the Allies rebelled, but when the Byzantines brought off some of the Allies, just the Normans remained. The Normans were allowed to found the county of Apulia and Calabria, with William Iron on being recognised as the first count. A brother of William, called Robert Giscard, would win the favour of the papacy, which had initially been wary of the Normans when they first arrived in Italy. When Robert became the Count, the Pope Nicholas II recognised him as a Duke and really legitimised Norman presence in Italy. 
with disputes between the Muslim dynasties about who should rule the island of Sicily, it appeared that the Pope and Robert Giscard recognised an opportunity. So Pope Nicholas declared that Robert was also the Duke of Sicily, giving Robert the papal authority to invade. Over the course of the next three decades, both Robert Giscard and his younger brother, Roger Bosso, were able to conquer the Muslim island of Sicily. They initially befriended one of the rivals to the Emir in order to get a foothold on the island, before systematically winning battles and overcoming settlements in order to take Sicily piece by piece, before securing the entire island under Norman rule by the year 1091. This would also include the islands of Malta to Sicily's south. It would be under Roger's son, also called Roger, that all of the Norman conquests of southern Italy and the island of Sicily would be recognised as a united kingdom of Sicily by the year 1130. The centre of Sicilian politics would be governed from the city of Palermo on the island of Sicily. So if we consider the island to be the centre of the wider kingdom of Sicily, then the kingdom remained in existence under one rule or another right up until the 19th century. Legacy The Normans of England and of Sicily were never truly overthrown, or rather both kingdoms independently passed into branches of the extended families of those Norman rulers who could also claim descent from other European families too. Norman power would be recognised at its most influential during the 1130s and 1140s. Henry I, a son of William the Conqueror, is regarded as the last fully Norman monarch of England, with him leaving no male heirs on his death in 1135. A succession crisis ensued and the crown would eventually pass down to the descendants of Henry's daughter Matilda, who had married into the ruling family of Anjou and therefore giving rise to what is referred to as the Angevin dynasty, who ruled both England and Normandy. In Sicily, King Roger II had briefly conquered lands of the Arab region of Ifriqiya in the modern country of Tunisia during the 1140s, so we could suggest that Norman influence had stretched from the Kingdom of England in the north into northern France and the Duchy of Normandy, then the entire southern half of the Italian peninsula, including the islands of Sicily and Malta, and lands in North Africa. The Normans had gone up against the Anglo-Saxons, the Byzantines and the Arabs during their rise to power. The Norman King William III of Sicily was just a child when he was overthrown by his great-aunt Constance, a daughter of King Roger II, in 1194. Constance was married to the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI of the House of Hohenstaufen which then became the ruling house of the Kingdom of Sicily. So, we see the Norman line continued 
through both kingdoms of England and Sicily, although we no longer recognise the monarchs as being from the House of Normandy. As for the Duchy of Normandy itself, it continued to exist and be ruled by the Angevins after Geoffrey of Anjou had defeated Stephen of Blois to win control of the duchy in 1144, which was a conquest that was a wider part of the succession crisis that had destabilised the Kingdom of England in a period known in English history as the Anarchy. Geoffrey gave the title of Duke of Normandy to his son, Henry, in 1150, who would go on to rule England as Henry II from 1154. The Angevin monarchs of England would also rule over Normandy until the early 13th century. In the year 1202, the French king Philip II invaded Normandy, which at the time recognised King John of England as its duke. By 1204, Philip's invasion was complete and Normandy was taken away from John's jurisdiction and added to the Kingdom of France. When Philip conquered Normandy, he would only go as far as the northern coast of France, which is still significant to this day. Originally, Normandy would include a small group of islands just off its northern coast and in the English Channel. These islands are called the Channel Islands, with the largest two islands in this archipelago being Jersey and Guernsey. King Philip was not concerned about these islands when he conquered Normandy, and so the Channel Islands have become a bit of an enigma. So because the French monarch didn't conquer these lands, they are the only unconquered territory of the Duchy of Normandy, and as such these islands continued to be recognised as the Duchy of Normandy, and they still recognised the English monarch as their duke, this is why these islands are crown dependencies of the United Kingdom to this very day and why they retain British culture as their dominant culture but with a lot of French influence. So the Duchy of Normandy still exists today as the Channel Islands and the Duke of Normandy is Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom. Cheers for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Normans. Very fascinating episode and uh, interesting to see the relationship between the Normans and the other cultures of Europe. We're often so focused on William the Conqueror and what he did that we often forget to look at the wider picture and exactly how important the Normans were in European history. So... Uh, very good to explore that and to sort of open up uh, a bit of a larger theatre for the Normans. But uh, interesting episode, and of course, uh, as you could probably imagine, there is that one big battle uh, that we do need to focus on. We wouldn't be able to go through this volume without uh, discussing the Battle of Hastings, so that will be next week. But uh, as for this week, that's all done and dusted, and the Normans... Uh, now goes into our archive.
The Ancient World Cup. This week's Ancient World Cup match uh, that took place was between the Sumerians and the Sasanians. And um, for those of you who don't know what the Ancient World Cup is, it's just a little bit of fun. It's a bit of a competition that we've got going with between 64 ancient cultures and nations and uh, they're competing each, uh, with each other until we get down to one winner and it's all done by votes. So uh, the History of the World podcast listeners are voting for who their favourites are and who they want to advance. So we're currently in the second round of the competition. It's a knockout phase and we've got the Sumerians versus the Sasanians. And that was the one that we were voting on last week. The votes have been uh, closed now and counted up. We had 64 votes, a good healthy amount of votes. So thank you very much for everyone who took part. And, uh, well, last week we had a bit of a landslide victory. And uh, it's the same again this week. With 84% of the vote, 84% are the Sumerians, the Mesopotamian ziggurat builders uh, of ancient history. Um, so very, very popular with the listening contingent of the History of the World podcast. And they uh, they send the Sasanian Persians out of the competition, the last Persian culture before the Islamic um, uh, revolution, you could say, of those lands. I don't know how to say, say invasion, really. It's sort of a the Islamic revolution of the lands of Persia. And um, we uh, we will see the Sumerians again in round three, where they will face uh, the winner of our next game. Now, the next game will be the one that we vote on uh, in the coming week. And the two combatants are the Phoenicians and Ptolemaic Egypt. So that's going to be very interesting. The Phoenicians, who were the sort of the phoenix from the flames of the late Bronze Age collapse, were the ones that took advantage of that ability to trade via the Mediterranean and and build up uh, wealth and and networking in the Mediterranean following the late Bronze Age collapse. And then the Ptolemaic Egyptians, of course, um, the you know one of the strongest uh, factions or nations that emerged from the death of Alexander the Great and uh, gave us a, a legacy that took us right the way through to Queen Cleopatra. Uh, so the Phoenicians versus Ptolemaic Egypt uh, that will be our eighth match in the round of thirty two. We'll we'll be halfway through after that one's complete. So well done to everyone who's followed it and. Uh, don't forget to go to the Facebook page, uh, the Twitter account, the Tapper Talk discussion forum, uh, even the History of the World podcast fan group and the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages on Facebook. Um, vote in any of those places and take part in this great competition. Listener messages and reviews. Well, we're sort of reaching a, a bit of a threshold in the uh, in the fourth volume. Um, we're coming up to June now. For those of you who are not listening to it, um, you know, every week up to date, um, and um, there's I've got I've got a little bit going on in June, so I expect that um, the podcast might take a brief summer break, maybe and have like maybe a couple or three. Um, unscripted episodes 
um, just to keep the just to keep the uh, the podcast moving, just to keep it published. Um, while we uh, write and present new episodes, and of course um, we do have um, some special episodes coming. One of them fits in nicely with the stories that we're telling for uh, Mr. Eric G. Young. Um, we're going to be uh, presenting an episode on medieval weaponry, so that will be um, that will be very interesting. I, I would suggest uh, a, a nice study on the changing world of medieval weaponry, and uh, it really is a critical time in terms of uh, battles and and how uh, how battles changed over that sort of period of history. Um, we'll also be doing a special episode uh, for Nick Kabilafkas, um on the Khoisan uh, cultures of Africa. Um, so once again, a, a, another sort of incredibly interesting uh, aspect of history and the modern world. Um, but then also we'll be doing a special episode for um, pre-Carpenter on the history of the island of Crete. Um, so once again, that'll be that'll be something a bit new actually to tackle something of of that kind of uh, nature. There, just a real sort of roller coaster journey through history that'll be. Um, so three special episodes to look forward to before we resume and um, and pick up our story about the the Crusades of of medieval history and and uh, sort of play out the years of Europe up until the the fifteenth century. So um, plenty to look forward to. Uh, those people who have qualified for special episodes to be written um have done so by becoming patrons of the podcast and making financial contributions and uh you too can become a patron of the podcast and and be accepted as a lifelong member of the history of the world podcast.com illuminati by going to the history of the world podcast.com website clicking on the patreon link and signing up to make a monthly contribution and uh we welcome in uh, some new patrons to the podcast and uh, they are Stephen Williams, David Knoblock, Joseph Pierce and Daniel Potter, all now members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Uh, thank you very much and welcome into our exclusive little club and uh, your contributions really do make a difference to the podcast and uh, the quality of the work that I can put out. So thank you so much indeed. Nathan Cox, who's a friend of the podcast, wrote in just asking, um, where is the podcast going to go in the future? Well, um, get asked this from time to time. Um, we're looking at seven volumes, really. And uh, the, this current volume, uh, we're probably about, probably just over a quarter of the way through it now so it's going to be quite a large volume a bit like volume three um but then uh volume five is going to be uh focusing on the sort of the age of exploration and the renaissance and and that kind of thing volume six will be uh focusing more on the industrial revolution uh and uh volume seven will be on the modern world so we'll be looking at the the aftermath of the world wars and that and that kind of thing as well leading up to the modern age so or the current day i should say 
So that's what we've got to look forward to. Uh, thank you for inquiring, Nathan. It's very good of you. Very good of you to uh, stay in touch with the podcast. Um, Nicholas Kerr wrote in, also another good friend of the podcast, but um, hope I find you and all the hot world uh, followers well. There is so much to learn. As a novice historian, I thought I might have learned about the geological history of Ireland. I knew it was volcanic, but didn't know about its relatively recent creation as an island. Thanks for always being up to date and doing the hard yards on behalf of all lovers of history. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that... I, I think we've got Shane Smith, really, to thank for uh, our focus on Iceland because, uh, once again, he was a patron of the podcast that qualified for a special episode and commissioned uh, the one on the saga writer, the uh, North saga writer, Snorri Stotlison, who, of course, uh, was an Icelandic um writer and politician statesman you could say those of you who have qualified for actual gifts that were that are due to be sent out in the post don't you haven't been forgotten about don't worry we just tend to send them out in bulk that's all uh so they'll all go out together to everybody we received a review this week from uh henry james moody from new zealand brilliant to uh, get a review from new zealand thank you very much indeed addictive series i thought i'd give this podcast a try from the beginning and i haven't stopped listening really enjoyable and informative that's a, a very good succinct and and uh very very good praise uh henry thank you so much for that uh, very decent review anyway that's it for another week Thank you so much for listening. Uh, next week, the Battle of Hastings. Excellent episode that will be. Um, really fascinating to uh, to explore that very, very famous battle. So looking forward to that. And until next week, have a great week, everyone. And be good. The History of the World podcast. Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.